Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. Let's go to um, 1 Samuel 16, 14. First Samuel 16, 14. I'm reading out of the ESV. Um, this is a wonderful ESV Bible that I got from Pastor Bob Phillips. And uh, so I am learning to spend more time in the ESV and make that transition. It's a good translation. So um, let's read this. Verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it in his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, so the, the scenario is King Saul is tormented by an evil spirit or a harmful spirit. Now don't get tripped up on the fact that it says that it came from God. I know that's kind of freaky and that's like, what in the heck do you do with that? And that's weird. I, I get that. But put it in this context that prior to this happening, Saul had hardened his heart against the Lord, disobeyed the Lord over and over again. The prophet Samuel had to rebuke him on multiple occasions to the point where Saul kept hardening his heart and would not submit to what God wanted for his life. It's kind of like he wanted the blessings of God. He wanted God's will his way, which in the end really isn't God's will. He wanted God's will his way, and he wanted the blessings of God, but not submission to God. And so, look, at the very least, when you read this and read this bizarre scripture that says God sent an evil spirit to him, okay? Understand this. God is a good God. He's a good father. And you don't have to worry about going, am I going to wake up tomorrow tormented by some evil spirit? I don't know. God's just kind of randomly throwing things out there. No, he's not. He's a very good God. He's a very good father. And the enemy is only attracted to sin in our heart. So if we keep our hearts pure, we don't have to worry about the torment of the enemy. As long as we walk humbly and obedient before God, we don't have to worry about some evil spirit from any source coming to torment us. You follow what I'm saying? He's a good God. He's a good father, okay? It's not just some random act of, oh, who knows why this happened. No, it's only in the context of disobedience and unyieldedness in our heart to God. And that was the context by which this was happening. 
Okay? So they, his, the people around him are like, look, dude, you're tormented. You're miserable. We know this kid. He plays an instrument. Okay? You're being tormented. Let's bring him in. And this is what it says at the end. It says in verse 23, And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. There's one way of looking at that, and one of those ways is, wow, praise God, look at that. The anointed worship leader came in and played this worship music, whoo, and that torment left him. That's one way of looking at it, and that's good. Like, that shows us the power that is on anointed worshipers and anointed worship. That's awesome. But here, the bottom line with this story is it's really tragic because here is a leader in Israel who is tormented by the enemy. He's tormented by a demonic spirit. And what he's doing, ultimately, is he's never really breaking into freedom. If you know the story, the, the, Saul ends his life in a tragic death, disobedient and cut off from the Lord. It's a tragedy. And in this scenario, instead of him going, David, what's the source? Like, David, you're anointed to lead worship. David, you got this amazing relationship with God. David, you have this amazing connection with God. You know how to attract his presence and live in his presence. I want to know what the secret of it is. I humble myself before you, young David. Show me how to live in the presence of God. Saul doesn't do that. He just lives off of the anointing that was on David. You see, the truth is we need one another. The truth is the body of Christ is dependent upon one another. The truth is we need one another's giftings and talents and abilities and anointings, right? But a distortion of that truth is I can just live my life with Jesus through somebody else. I can live vicariously through someone else's worship experience. Oh, they have an anointing on them. That's great. I'll come into this church, and we're known as a place of his presence. And I love the presence of God that dwells here. But I'm afraid that there are times, there are some people at times who will come into this place, and they're like, I love the presence I feel here. I love when I come here, and I love when the, when the, when the music begins to start, and I feel the peace, the kiss of his presence, and, and all that stuff that I deal with throughout the week. It's, it, it begins to dissipate. And I understand that there's a place of refreshing in his presence that we get to bask in. But at the end of the day, if all we're doing is getting refreshed, but we're never really restored, it's probably because of lack of repentance. See, God's desire for you is not merely to be refreshed, but never be changed. He wants to restore your life and set you free from the enemy. And that does not just happen by getting refreshed in his presence. It comes through repentance. And through that repentance, there's restoration. David lived in the presence of God. He lived a lifestyle of attracting his presence. Saul, on the other hand, had an unrepentant heart that would not submit to the Lord. He was tormented in his mind and in his thoughts. And he tried to live vicariously through the worship of another man. That will never work. There's a balance in that. Like I said, in the body of Christ, we're dependent on one another. There's this mutual give and take, and we can strengthen and encourage one another, and and we get to serve and love one another. That's awesome. But the distortion of that is, is that somehow we get to 
live our life through someone else's relationship. Any other man or woman of God that you see their walk with God and you value what they carry, okay? You get to look at that as inspiration that God is calling you to something greater in him. It's not so you can just sit back and go, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live off of their anointing. Look, I'm so thankful for the technology we have today. So many of us take advantage of podcasts. I'm not just talking about like here at Heartland. I'm saying podcasts from great ministries around the globe. And, and there's so much teaching, good and bad, that's out there on YouTube. The technology of what we, and what we have available today is amazing. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's nothing like me shutting in with the Lord and getting in the secret place and being with him. There's nothing like grabbing my Bible and just getting before the Lord and say, Lord, speak to me. I'm going to feed on your word. I'm going to feed on who you are. I'm going to live in your presence. There's no substitute for that. My prayer is that for the people that show up here at times that are tormented in their mind and you enjoy the presence, you enjoy some of the peace that you get from the presence. You get a little bit of relief, but you're not restored. I pray that this would be the morning that you surrender in repentance so you can be restored. So you don't have to just live off of someone else's relationship. You can learn to live in his presence for yourself. Amen? All right. He was refreshed, but he wasn't restored. Now, let's jump over to another passage of scripture in the same chapter. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. As you're turning there, King Saul got temporary relief but did not get restoration because he did not repent. King Saul loved the anointing and presence that somebody else's worship brought. It soothed him for a short while, but in the end, he was still tormented. I was reading a, I was reading a book on holiness a few years ago, and there's some amazing stuff in there, and there's some things I, I was rather uncomfortable with. I can't tell you yet whether I was uncomfortable with it for a good reason or a bad reason. I was just... I was just uncomfortable with it and I, but to be honest a few years later I don't remember a lot that was said in it but this one phrase stuck out to me and this this author was saying how a lot of times we will use language like this in the church well brother you know yeah I'm still kind of you know I'm still dealing with that area in my life I'm still kind of struggling with that I just haven't got victory in that area yet and he said perhaps it'd be better if we were just bluntfully honest with ourselves and say I haven't chosen to be obedient yet King Saul lived in torment, but he didn't have to live that way. There was a way out. If he would have humbled himself and repented, there would have been deliverance. He did not have to die a tragic death if he would have simply humbled himself. But instead of it getting better, it got worse. And, and, and it says at first that he loved King David, but then his jealousy grew. Saul was a man who was bound by the, bound by the, the fear of man. 
If you read through the story of his life, there's multiple times where he talks about, I just gave into what the people wanted. I feared the people. I got nervous, so I, I offered the sacrifice, even though I wasn't supposed to offer the sacrifice. Saul was a man who was bound by insecurities, and God had freedom for him. But the reason why he was so jealous is because he was so insecure. If he would have humbled himself, there was a way out. A lot of us know this, this story. Some of you don't, but there's another part uh, early on uh, just around the time where Saul's going to become king. And it says that he walks by these, these, these group of prophets, okay? And it says, most versions say that and he was changed into another man. And all of a sudden, Saul starts prophesying. And the people around him are like, whoa, hey, is Saul among the prophets too? He's prophesying. And I've heard a lot of people use that and say, see how the power of the anointing in an environment can come in and somebody can just step into that atmosphere and become a different person? And I believe that can happen. That does happen, and I love it. But in this case, I'm afraid it was very short-circuited in the life of Saul because it's another example of how he was living off of somebody else's anointing. It's like he came into the environment where prophets were prophesying, and suddenly he began to prophesy, but at the end, his heart was still wound up being hardened against the Lord, and he disobeyed the Lord. There's different ways in which Saul lived off of someone else's experience. And it was tragic. But you look at David at the other hand. You know, there's never a passage that says, and David was turned into another man. He didn't have to be turned into another man because he was faithful from the beginning. He sought the Lord from the beginning. He didn't have to have some anointing come on him to change him to a different person. He was shut away with God in the secret place and was faithful to deal with with the issues in his life, even though we know the famous story of his moral failure later on. But if you look at David's life as a whole, it was, it was a rare moment. And I believe that's part of the reason why God said, this is a man after my own heart, and it did not define him, because this was not a pattern in his life. It was a very dark moment in David's history, but it was not his pattern. And so David lived a life before the Father. He lived in his presence, and he cultivated a lifestyle of obedience before the Lord. He didn't have to be changed into another man. Saul did, but it didn't last very long. Now, let's look at this passage of Scripture in um, chapter 4. Let's... uh, let me, let, me, let, me, let me just give the context of what lay, leads up to chapter 4. First, uh, first Samuel, Samuel, uh, his mom was barren. Then God breaks through, does a miracle. She gets pregnant with uh, little baby Samuel. He grows up before the Lord. The priest in the land was um, a man who was not doing his duty. Um, he was not faithful with what God set before him. Eli was kind of like this old backslidden man who was still occupying the place of a priest. And his two sons who were priests, um, Hophni and Phinehas, it says that they were wicked men. They were, they were doing things that they were not prescribed to do as priests before the Lord. They were not obeying the word of the Lord. They were not obeying what God had prescribed for them in their lives. They were filled with greed and the way that they would receive, and the way they would treat people and they would take things that did not belong to them. And then also, they lived in sexual immorality. They would literally, it, it talks about how they would sleep with women um, at, basically at the entrance to the, the house of the Lord. They were fornicating with other women. 
And they were wicked men. And Eli knew about this. And if you read the context in the ESV, it says at the beginning of one of these early chapters, it says, and Eli rebukes his sons. But later on we read in these verses, it says, but he did not restrain them. He rebuked them, but he didn't restrain them. So here is a, a, a priest basically who's backslidden. I mean, it's, it says in there that the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions, and his sight was growing dim. Eventually, by the end of his life, he's, he's blind. And that represents spiritually where he was at. And so the context is you have these priests who are living wicked before the Lord. Involved in all kinds of immorality. And even when their own father gave them a light rebuke, they would not change their ways. Okay? So, by this point, as we're jumping into chapter 4, young boy Samuel grows up to be a man of God. Lived in the presence of God. As a little boy, slept next to the Ark of the Covenant. And now here we pick it up in chapter 4. You ready? Okay. Verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may... Come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded, and the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting and said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. We'll pause right there. For the few minutes that we have left this morning, the name of this message this morning is when the presence of God becomes dangerous. Here's the scenario. Verse 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And about 4,000 men died in battle. That's tragic. The children of God were never meant to lose to their enemies. God made it quite clear, victory is yours if you submit to me and you walk in my ways. You read through Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you read through this stuff and God over and over again is like, just trust me and obey me. Just trust me and obey my commandments. Obey what I've prescribed for you. Just obey me and if you obey me, you will walk in victory. And they knew, look, if the enemy that we were supposed to overtake is defeating us, something is wrong. They knew it wasn't for no reason. And so they ask a very good question. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Good question, right? 
You go out and you lose 4,000 men. You know that God Almighty has called you to walk in victory and defeat your enemies. Instead, you wind up in this humiliating defeat and now 4,000 people are dead. It's a good question to pause and say, what happened? Why did the Lord allow this to happen? How many think that's a good question? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant... You notice there's no pause? You notice there's a question, but there's no inquiring? There's a question going, why has this happened? But they're not pausing to say, let's fast, let's pray, let's humble ourselves before God and find out what is going on. Why has this happened? They automatically assume that they know the answer. They automatically assume that they know what the antidote to their problem is. You follow what I'm saying? They ask a good question, but they don't wait for the answer. They jump in and they assume that they know the answer. And this is what they say. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of His presence, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. You notice what he says there. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of His presence that it may save us from the power of our enemies. Some translations translate it differently. Some say Him, some say it. In this case, it's it. Several say it. But I would propose to you that even if they did say Him, they were still looking at the presence of God as if it's an it. They were not relating to God as a holy, wonderful, loving father to be in relationship with. They were looking to the ark of his presence as a little uh, magical get me out of jail card. I'm going to use the presence of God so I can be blessed and prospered and overcome my enemy. But we're really not interested in listening and inclining our ear to hear what he has to say. Humbling ourselves and go, God, what's wrong? Something is wrong here because we were defeated. What's going on? God, search our hearts. There was sin in the camp. And instead of acknowledging that, instead of hearing God whisper to their heart and rebuke them and deal with them and lovingly as a loving father discipline them, instead of doing that, they thought they knew what the answer was. And they're like, quick, get the ark. Because if we have the ark, we know nothing can stop us. We are going to bring the ark of the covenant. We're going to bring the ark of the presence into our midst because it is our holy good luck charm. Nothing can stop us when we have the ark of his presence. We're undefeatable with the ark. I mean, this is the ark where almighty God himself sits between the cherubim. See, we know and we teach it a lot around here and rightfully so. We love it because we love his presence. We're a people of worship. We love praise and worship. And we know that Psalm 22 says God inhabits the praise of his people. He's enthroned on the praise of his people. But can I tell you, that is not just a formula. It's not like, wow, we just worship him and, and we're going we're gonna to just do this formula so his magical presence will come. No, it's not like that. He's a holy God and he's a loving, loving father who dearly wants relationship with us. So that presence that comes that touches you, that heals you, that brings you some relief is the same 
presence from a holy God who wants to abide with you and live in your life every day of the week. They were treating the presence of God almost as if it was a good luck charm. So let's read just a little bit further here this scenario of what happens. As soon as the, verse, verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. Sounds pretty charismatic to me. So that the earth resounded. All right, look, we are in constantly trying to get the, just the right balance with our music around here, okay? I hope that it was not too loud for anybody here today. But can I tell you something? Literally, the earth shook. When they lifted up their shout. You think it's loud here? They, the, the armies of Israel were shouting so loud that the earth shook. It wasn't because they had the bass up so loud. These are just people shouting. They were shouting that the earth resounded. Verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? How many of that's pretty good? They lift up a shout. The presence of God is here. Woo! We're going to shout. And now the enemy hears their shout because the presence of God is in their midst. That sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? So they ask a question. What does this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they had learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, now pause right there. It even gets better. Not only does the ark of God's presence come into the people of God and they lift up a shout, but now the enemy hears their shout and fear comes into the heart of the enemy. It's supposed to work that way, isn't it? That's a good thing. It should be an awesome thing. Verse 7, the Philistines were afraid. The enemy was afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They knew the history of Jehovah God. That he had delivered, they knew that Yahweh had delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they wiped Egypt out. The fame of the Lord had been spread around that area. And they knew, the enemy, the Philistines knew that Yahweh, the one true living God, had wiped out Egypt and set this people free. How many think that's pretty cool? The enemy hears that the presence of the Lord returns to the people of God. And in the midst of that, the people of God lift up a shout. The enemy hears the shout, and in that shout, they get afraid. I like that. But there's one problem, and that's the next verse. They say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. The very thing that was meant to produce fear and retreat in the heart of the enemy had the exact opposite effect. Is that because the presence of God had changed? No. Had God changed? Had his presence changed? 
Had the ark changed? Has they had the ark changed? No. The only difference was this: is that there was this stubborn iniquity and sin bound up in the heart of people. Now you could have a tendency. Some of you might be tempted to say, "Well, yeah, but those were the leaders. They were the priests. They should know better." And so that's not about me. It's not about the average believer. Look, in the new covenant, we're called to be a kingdom of priests. We're all priests, okay? And there was this stubborn iniquity, these sinful patterns that remained, unrepentant sin that was in the people of God that was not dealt with. And suddenly now, the ark was now right next to these two men, Hophni and Phinehas, who lived in unrepentant sexual sin. And when they were rebuked, they did not respond. Instead of being restored... They didn't respond. They didn't humble themselves. And suddenly now, the presence of God becomes a deadly thing. Look, I love the presence of God. And God is my Father. I delight in Him, and He delights in me. But can we also recognize that in Hebrews it says, Our God is a consuming fire. He's a loving Father, and He hates sin. He is holy. Look, I am so thankful for the new covenant. I'm so thankful that we don't live under the old covenant. But there are principles here for us to learn from. Let's go to the next verse, verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The first time it was 4,000. But because they did not seek the Lord's counsel, because they didn't find out what was going wrong, because they, they asked the right question, but they didn't wait for the counsel of the Lord. In presumption, they kept going, and yet there was sin in the camp. There was sin, iniquity, stubborn patterns of immorality that was in the heart of people, specifically the leaders, but that was in the heart of the people. And because of that, what happened was the second battle, instead of 4,000 dying, 30,000 people died. 30,000 men died in battle. I don't know how many wives were left behind mourning the loss of their husband. I don't know how many moms were left mourning the loss of their kids. And you might go, oh man, but that's Old Testament and we're not the children of Israel. We're under a new covenant. And I, I, I get that. I love that. I'm so thankful for the new covenant. But can, can we at least learn nothing else than this? Is that sin really has consequences. There's real consequences to sin. God hadn't changed. And I'll tell you this. He hasn't changed from that day till now either. How he relates to us through the new covenant in Jesus has changed. But I tell you what, his holiness and his hatred for sin hasn't changed. He's a good God. He's a good father and he is holy. And there are still consequences for our sin. I don't know how many little kids ran up to their mom that day and said, when's dad coming home? But he's not coming home. 
Because people held on to their sin and they thought that they could get by with the presence of God as a good luck charm that would give them victory. But it produced the opposite effect. This is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. This phrase has been going over my heart over the last few weeks. We cannot substitute the presence of God for obedience to God. We cannot make up in his presence what we lack in obedience. You might say, well, I I thought you were talking about how to cultivate and live a lifestyle in his presence. I am. Because if we don't learn this, we'll never sustain that presence of God. We'll never be able to live in it. We cannot substitute the presence of God for obedience to God. We cannot make up in his presence what we lack in obedience. James 4, 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. What did we just read here in 1 Samuel? The, the Israelites were lined up against the Philistines, and the enemy should have fleed. Am I right? They lined up against the enemy. They were trying to resist the enemy with their warfare, and they should have fled. But instead, the opposite result happened. Why is that? Because James does not just say resist the enemy and he'll flee. He says submit to God. And to the degree that you'll submit to God, you will find victory in your life and you will find the enemy fleeing. But if I'm not submitted to God, all that demonic torment, all that temptation, all that bondage, all that stuff, all those weaknesses, all those temptations, all that torment in the mind, that's not going to flee. The enemy's not going to flee if I'm not submitted to Jesus as King and Lord. The first step is submit to God and he will flee. Submit to God, resist the devil and he'll flee. But if all I'm doing, if I'm still stuck in my unbelief or I'm still stuck in deception, if I'm still stuck in compromise, if I'm still looking at things I shouldn't be looking at, if I'm still drinking things I shouldn't be drinking, if I'm still engaging in conversations I shouldn't be engaged, if I'm still watching movies I shouldn't be watching, well then this formula doesn't work. Because I can try to, quote, resist the devil all day, but he's going to have a heyday messing with my mind and heart. Because if I'm not submitted to him, if I'm not submitted to God, I'm not going to cause the devil to flee. Man, I love his presence. I want to live in his presence. I love the Holy Spirit. And scripture commands us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve him. Look, we cannot just live off of somebody else's experience. I love his presence, and I love teaching. And training. I had a pastor the other day uh, call me from another state talking to me about how to lead people into his presence and intimacy with the Lord. I love that. It's what I do. I love it. But if we don't get this, we'll never be able to fully sustain or even grow in what God has for us. The antidote for this is the fear of the Lord. True biblical life-giving fear of the Lord makes us run to God and not from Him. The true fear of the Lord makes us run to God and not from Him. Real quick, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. How many of you appreciate the message of sonship? 
that God is our papa and that we're sons and daughters, that we're beloved sons and daughters. I love that. I love that. We celebrate that around here. Amen? Okay, let's look at this beautiful passage here. 2 Corinthians 6.17, reading from the ESV. Therefore, go out from their midst, or come out from among them, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that awesome? That's God being a wonderful, loving father. And that's us being sons and daughters of God. And he says, come out from the world. Don't touch the unclean thing. Don't partake in their wickedness. Then I will be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters. Verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, we love the promises of God. I'm thankful for his new covenant promises. Since we have these amazing promises in Christ, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in... Anybody reading the Bible this morning? To completion in what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of God. Wow, that's New Testament. You know who it's written by? It's written by Paul, who had probably the greatest revelation on the fatherhood of God and the grace of God and the beauty and the glory of the New Testament. This is Paul writing this passage. The fear of God is not just an Old Testament concept. It is a New Testament concept as well. It is mentioned often, repeatedly throughout Scripture over and over again. The real fear of the Lord is this reverence for a holy God who knows everything, who sees everything, who means what he says. And it doesn't contradict the fact that he's a wonderful, loving, gracious father. He's a loving father. But I have to know that Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever man sows, that will he also reap. And if you, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. That's, that is a promise in the New Testament. Yeah. Amen to that. God's serious about it. He'll punctuate it any way he can. Jump over real quick to uh, back up to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus, we love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. We love you. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us, each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Next verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The fear of the Lord. Just before he mentions that verse about the fear of the Lord, what does he say? He says, knowing that we're all going to stand before God and give an account for our lives, for what we've done. And then he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. What's he saying? This is a description. It's, it's, it's connected to the fear of the Lord. A recognition one day, all of us are going to die, and we're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. 
that should produce a measure of the fear of the Lord in our hearts. The only way to really keep and sustain the manifest presence of God in your life and in us corporately is for us to embrace the fear of the Lord. Look, we just sang earlier, we said there's no fear in love. Where do we get that from? We get that from 1 John, okay? I believe it's chapter 4. It says perfect love casts out fear, and that is true. The Father is perfect love, and we don't have to, we don't have to um, fear that punishment. We don't have to fear God, a fear as some kind of phobia that we run from him. But no, the holy reverential fear of God makes us run to him. A couple years ago, we had Jeff Collins here, and he shared a lot of neat things. The one thing that so stood out to me, what he said, is he said, to me, the greatest punishment in the world, the greatest pain in the world, would be to know that I've grieved the Holy Spirit. Here's what's amazing to me. He's a husband. He's a father. He didn't say the greatest pain would be some kind of rift or problem or betrayal or loss of my wife or my kids. He said the greatest pain for me would be to know that I grieve the Holy Spirit with my words, with my attitude, with my actions, to what I do. I don't want to grieve him. And you know what? If we really live that way, if the greatest the greatest pain that I could ever feel is knowing that I grieve the Holy Spirit. If that's really what I feel in my heart, then I'm probably never going to grieve him. I'm going to be very, very sensitive to him. I want to conclude with this. I love you guys. I love this church. I love the presence of God. And we're going to go for more. And I believe God has greater things for us in the days ahead. And I love his presence that is here right now. But we cannot, we cannot substitute the presence of God for our lack of obedience. See, I believe God has more of his presence available for us. And I love his presence and he's going to keep coming. And I love it. But can I tell you something? The Bible doesn't command us to feel his presence. But the Bible does command us to be obedient. And if we'll just live obedient, surrendered lives, so convinced of his goodness, with a reverential fear of the Lord, his presence will come. His presence will come in greater dimensions. The fear of the Lord is a beautiful thing. It is my constant prayer that I would embrace the fear of the Lord. It says in Isaiah 11 that Jesus was anointed with the feet, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. You might go, well, you know, I don't, I'm not really into the fear of the Lord. Hey, Jesus himself had the spirit of the fear of the Lord resting on him. And then it says he delights in the fear of God. That's good enough for me. If Jesus himself embraced the fear of the Lord and delights in the fear of the Lord, then I want to delight in it. And even if it's a mystery and I don't fully comprehend it, I go, Jesus, I want to be with you. The spirit of the fear of the Lord was on you, then I want it to be upon me. Jesus, you delight in the fear of the Lord, then I want to delight in the fear of the Lord. Because I'm in. If you're into it, I'm into it. I want to be, I want to have an obedient, submissive heart. I don't want to be like a Saul. And what's so tragic is the way that story ends is that Eli's daughter-in-law goes in to labor. 
And she gets the news that because of sin in the camp, her father-in-law, Eli, had died. She found out that her brother-in-law had died. She found out that her husband had died. And now she's given birth to this little baby. And she names him Ichabod. The glory has departed. Man, that puts the fear of God in my heart. That puts the fear of God in my heart. I cannot stand here and say, but Lord, we're heartland and Lord, we, we attract your presence and that could never happen to us. Look, none of us are immune from any measure of deception. Only to the degree, only to the degree that we humble ourselves before a holy God and say, God, search my heart. God, I love you. I want to honor you with my life. God, I don't want to grieve you, Holy Spirit, but I welcome the spirit of the fear of the Lord. If you've never prayed that, I invite you to pray that. Welcome the spirit of the fear of the Lord. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.